I think the political right has correctly noticed that there's an issue about utopianism in Marx and about eschatology, but they put too much stress on the utopian one and I think got it the wrong way around. Marx is a good utopian, not a bad utopian. What's wrong with him is that there's eschatology in it. Welcome to The Political Animals. I'm your host, Jonathan Cole. I'm a scholar, writer, and translator specializing in political theology, the intersection of religion and politics. I'm joined once again by fan favorite and colleague, Wayne Hudson, who is an adjunct professor at Charles Sturt University, the Australian National University, and the University of Tasmania. He's an intellectual historian, by trade and in this particular conversation we are going to explore the man the myth and the legend that is Karl Marx you may have heard of him Wayne amongst other things you are a world authority on the East German Marxist philosopher Ernst Bloch whom you did your PhD on some years ago I think we can <laughs> say back when whenever that was was that where your interest in the thought of Karl Marx began? No, because I was interested in Bloch uh, when I was a student at Sydney University, because I was uh, involved in the Theological Studies Society. We had a lot of theology conferences, and I was reading all the, the latest theology, and Bloch was already then uh, becoming a very important figure in late 20th century theology. So I knew about him, I knew about Marx because I was interested in, you know, politics and the history of Russia, Germany and China, and he was pretty big in all those contexts. So I'd been thinking about him for quite a bit at that stage as well. But I didn't have the resources then to really get to grips with Marx because my main language was English, obviously. Uh, I had never lived in Germany. Uh, I didn't understand in any way what kind of person Karl Marx was. And the Marx I knew was probably the same person that most of the people listening to us today know, uh, a sort of revolutionary leftist of some kind who was planning a world revolution that sort of happened in Russia and China and didn't happen. I didn't know the kind of person Marx was. I didn't understand in any detail, I think, the philosophical tradition he came out of. I knew all the names, as many of many Australians perhaps do, but I couldn't have given you a you know, six-month course on any of them, and I'd certainly not read their original texts, particularly the untranslated material. In all of German philosophy, you always have to remember two things. Most of the books are not translated. Someone who writes you know, 120 volumes, we will have translated three. It does give you a somewhat strange view. And then German doesn't go into English. German philosophy has a high vocabulary and it's very difficult to translate it into English at all. English doesn't have complex words of the kind the German requires. So when I went to Oxford uh, and worked with Leszek Kowakowski, who was uh, the leading expert, I suppose, on Marxist philosophy at the time, having been a, uh, a communist revisionist philosopher and now abandoned it and become a critic of Marxism, I had to really mug up not only Karl Marx, but the whole history of philosophy, certainly all German philosophers. I had to learn the German language to a certain level anyway. And you had to go there because you couldn't understand this kind of culture uh, in England, let alone in Sydney. 
you raise that question of who is Karl Marx and everyone listening will have some conception, picture, portrait, image in their mind, not least of all because the name still pops up all the time, or at least the ism version, Marxism. So let's go back to this question of who was Karl Marx. Well, how many years do you have? Uh, (laughs) It's a long, long and very complicated story. But I I can't say who he was exactly, but I can certainly say who he wasn't. Um, The point is that Karl Marx came from a long family of rabbis. He was born in a house in uh, Constance, which has now been worked on to look as proletarian as possible, but was actually a kind of Italian palace with an Italian Renaissance garden. So this is not the kind of guy you've been hearing about. Uh, He has an elite education. He's an expert in ancient Greek philosophy. Now, this doesn't lead you to any of the views that you've ever heard about under the term Marxism, because as an expert in ancient Greek philosophy, Karl Marx has complicated views on everything. He does not think A or B. He thinks A and B is simplistic, and he has a third, more complex position. The easiest way to grasp it is to say that he's a Greek dialectical philosopher. Dialectical philosopher means there that simple dualisms don't do it. And Marx doesn't have dualist views about anything. And I'll go a little bit further and say not only wasn't he a Marxist, which of course he kept on saying, but he has very little to do with what is called Marxism after his death. Something to do with it perhaps in Germany is fair, but not in Russia and not in China. And not really in any country in the world at the moment. So he is not the kind of person that Marxism made him out to be. He's a very different kind of person. Uh, he marries into the German petty aristocracy. He lives in London, uh, in a working class suburb. No, he lives in Hampstead, which is one of the wealthiest suburbs in, in London. He's not wealthy at that moment. He's living off Engels's cotton factory in Manchester. That might also qualify your idea of him as a radical leftist. Uh, he won't have Engels' mistress in the house. They have a maid, of course. Marx is always... Uh, an upper bourgeois German, you shouldn't ever think anything else, but he's a, a genius in all kinds of ways, and so he has acres of languages, and if he wants a few more, he learns them. So Karl Marx is an extremely highbrow, extremely overeducated European intellectual with a speciality in classical Greek philosophy. Now, if this sort of person gets interested in politics, economics, and society, as he does, of course, he's going to come up with very complicated ideas. The problem is that the people who read about him and hear about him do not have that background. And so they project onto Marx dualisms that he is in fact attacking. So could you give us a taste of this philosophically sophisticated, overeducated, as you put it, sort of uh, yes, middle yeah. bourgeois German well, mind? Well, a very simple example, it's very well known, but the significance of it is never understood, I think, is Marx is often called a materialist, and certainly almost all Marxists, apart from a few Russians, have called themselves materialists, and of course Marxist-Leninists call themselves dialectical materialists. Well, was Marx a materialist? Well, of course, that depends what you mean. It's a rather subtle question. But when he addresses the question, as he does in the theses on Feuerbach, uh, Marx essentially is saying that people who think that materialism is about stuff 
or the content of the table are stupid. What Marx means by materialism in the thesis on Feuerbach is giving primacy to practical activity and not allowing objects and things to determine us in an unrealistic way. So here's a good example of how he holds a sophisticated and interesting doctrine, influenced heavily, I want to stress this, by Fichte. Many books on Marx give you the impression he was an Egalian. That's totally false. He never understands the history uh, of Hegel's thought, and he doesn't understand Hegel at all. Uh, Lenin thought he, he did really understand Hegel, but Lenin didn't understand Hegel either, and certainly Marx didn't. But Marx did understand Fichte. So the person you need to look at for early Marx particularly is the German philosopher Fichte, whose work is all about the primacy of activity. So this Karl Marx person is into activity as opposed to action, materialism in the sense of the primacy of practical activity. Later on, he does discuss all the German uh, materialists of the 19th century and the French materialists, and he rejects their views. So what we've called Marxism is something entirely different. Marx doesn't hold hardly any of the doctrines associated with Marxism. It's interesting that the sort of illustrations of his philosophy that you've given us are to do with materialism, which is a kind of classical <laughs> philosophical question, matter. But could you talk a little bit about his political philosophy or philosophy of economics to the extent that he even had one? Because I think you have some contrarian views on this. <laughs> well, I've started out by this theological philosopher idea in order to emphasize that what he's about is understanding what has gone wrong in human affairs and how we might set it right. And of course, apart from everything I've mentioned, he's also, of course, influenced by Prometheus. There's a Greek side to this, in that he thinks that the human being has to liberate itself from unjust or inappropriately oppressive conditions. So the radicalism is to free the human being from falsehood, social, economic, and political. And you could say that his vision throughout his life is one of a philosopher of freedom. Marx is a philosopher of freedom. And he wants to see the world that he's living in be transformed. And he wants to see a classless society. And he doesn't mean by a classless society a world where people are kind of identical, But he does mean a form of social existence where human beings are not dominated and degraded by processes they do not understand. So there is a strong scientific streak in Marx. It's not exactly science in an Anglo-Saxon sense. It's a very German sense of science. But he is concerned to understand the real logic of movement, logic of motion of capitalism. He thinks capitalism, like other economic systems, is something we don't understand, that it is leading us to destructive results, not because it's bad in itself, because he has a very favorable view of it in its positive moments, but because we don't understand what the real logic of development is. And we don't understand how we've been distorted and commodified and reified by this economic system. So it's a sophisticated view he has of economics. He's not an economist in any modern Anglo-Saxon sense, but he's certainly a, critique, a critic of political economy. And he's also concerned with how to transform the mode of value production. Marx thinks that modern societies are based on value production, and we do not need to have that as the only form of production, and he wants another one. 
So that, that gives a fair insight, I think. On the political, he's problematic because although he wants to see political change and it's sympathetic to uh, a kind of revolutionary politics of a sort, he's not a very political thinker. Marx has no theory of politics. He has very little to say about uh, the state or the party. He never really works out how you'd organize this future society. The ideas he has about it are really uh, very, very utopian, but also very freedom-oriented. He sees a future society in which uh, individuals will flourish as they do not flourish in the world of his time. He sees it as a society of free, associated producers. He does has no idea of state socialism. He has no idea of dictatorship. Uh, all of these ideas are not what he's about. He has a vision of human freedom. Uh, a complication we haven't mentioned, we, might, we have to mention, is of course that Marx is working with his friend Fred. And Fred never goes to university, and that's not this well This is under- Engels. Engels. Frederick Engels, who's a wonderful person uh, and a quite brilliant historian in his own way, uh, but he is not a Marx-type person in the sense that he does not have classical Greek philosophy. He doesn't go to university. He's brilliant, and so he writes about all these things. But what he writes about them are things that probably Marx would not have agreed with. And he has a huge role in the story because after Marx's death, he publishes most of Capital, putting in his own titles and leaving things out and adding other things and writing introductions. And Engels does have a number of views that you could associate with Marxism. But the point is that it's not so clear that Marx does. Much depends on a text called the German Ideology, which they never publish. Now, if you think of uh, German ideology as all Marx, well, you might find some Marxism in it, but it's not certain he wrote it. Uh, They certainly worked on it together. And it's fair to say that many of the classical theses of Marx, Marxism, have some resemblance in Engels, such as the dictatorship of the proletariat, but much, much less in Marx. So this, this presents us with an almighty paradox, which is the ism that gets attached to Marx of surname Marxism, you're suggesting is more Engelism than Marxism. Yes, uh, that's right. But it's still not entirely fair to Frederick Engels, you know, who is a more outstanding figure than that suggests. But Marx was a kind of Einstein. I mean, it's difficult to get the the, the level of him. He studies all the sciences of the 19th century and leaves dozens and dozens and dozens of notebooks. Uh, he's enormously prolific. He reads everything. He learns language after language. He find, if someone brings up another country he hasn't written about, he learns that. Uh, he's an enormously intelligent man who can cross in vast numbers of fields. And when you look at what he says in detail on anything... It's not Marxism. So, for example, he comments on uh, political developments in the 19th century from a major American newspaper. There's not a line of Marxism in anything he says about any of it. Uh, If you take the issue of natural law, of the nature of the legal system, Marxists developed philosophies of law. But apart from Bloch, they didn't get the idea that Marxists should have a natural law account of law. Karl Marx has a natural law account of law, and so on and so on and so on. So whenever you look into Karl very, very, very closely, you find he's putting forward complicated views, which were not the views later called Marxism. It's my understanding that his major works in German, I mean, they're all in German, I guess, are very difficult and philosophically sophisticated in that kind of classic German style of the 19th century. 
But of course, there's this thing called the Communist Manifesto that he drafts, co-authors with his mate Fred, as you call him, Engels. And of course, that's a very different kind of genre. And that, I suspect, has is the best-known work sort of at the popular level in the West because it's really easy to read and consume in translation. Was that originally written in German or English? I can't. I can't remember, but I can't, it's probably written in several languages. I can't remember that. But the the point of substance is that it's read out of historical context. You see, of course, we're talking about a nineteenth century person, and every time you take one of these quotes, you have to say, well, you know, when when did that come out? When was it written, and so on and so on? And what was happening at the time? Now you've got to understand the Communist Manifesto is written. In 1848, the whole of Europe's about to break out into revolution. It's, he's living in a moment when it looks as though the world is going to change. And so he and Engels are, at that moment, putting forward a very revolutionary point of view. But it's not really the sort of point of view that it seems to be to the modern reader now. And you can see that if you look more closely at what they say, or if you look at their actual views. I mean, they have extremely radical views, yes, I mean, but they don't include votes for women on Marx's point, and they don't include getting rid of the property qualification for parliament on Marx's side. Uh, there is this theory that workers uh, should rise and overthrow unjust conditions. They certainly think that. There's a very strong workers' party side to this. When the word communist, you see now, of course, signals all kinds of things to people. But of course, it didn't have that meaning then, and it comes partly out of the work of uh, a Jewish a messianic intellectual, Moses Hess, who became a Zionist. So it has associations with very uh, idealized conceptions of social life of an almost religious kind. So there's a mix between this religious utopian stuff and workers' political life. So what they're talking about in the Communist Manifesto is a utopia for working people. That's the, the, and it's published in England uh, by the Workers' Educational Association. Now, this is not what it seems to mean to a modern person, because you read the words and you think, ah, Lenin, ah, Mao, and so on and so on. But of course, those people uh, are not even born, of course. And what Marx and Engels are talking about has got nothing to do with them. And the, the League itself, which is mentioned in the books, was called the League of the Just. So there's a sort of early 19th century colour to this text, which now has a 20th century sense for us. So it's another example of an historical misunderstanding. And also, would it be fair to say, is not exactly representative of Marx's voluminous, prolific thought, given the, the sort of genre point I was alluding to earlier, that, yes. that this is like... <laughs> judging any intellectual... Well, well th this is not one of the philosophical works. This is political propaganda. It's designed to influence and gain, gain an influence over the workers' movement. This is what he's on about. It is a political document, and it's not written in his personal, technical, philosophical language. It's written in language they were using at the time. But that language often had another meaning then to what the modern reader would suspect. Uh, even the, the word communist, you know, people think, well, we know what that is. But on the contrary, Marx and Engels are never clear, really, about whether there's a distinction between communism and socialism. Marx certainly isn't. Later on, it's, Marx has explained very carefully that there'll be a socialist society and then a communist society. But that's not clear in Marx at all. And what Marx means by all of this stuff 
is very imminent in the actual debates of the day. And to understand it, you have to look at who he's arguing with. And they too are not quite saying what you're expecting because, of course, it sounds a funny thing to say, but it's all much more conservative than a modern person could imagine because these extremely dangerous revolutionaries, you know, they think that you could end child labour. Well, what a wicked thought that is. Or they think that perhaps men could vote. Uh, terrible. And even worse, they think that um, there could be uh, some limitation of, of working hours. You know, these people, their version of revolution would shock a modern Australian. I mean, they're not as radical as most Australian conservatives. Yeah, that, that's a really, really pertinent point. And it, it goes to this insight that, you know, if you transport these ideas out of their context into our current context, then you are talking about an extremely radical reorganization of society. And what people will fear is the, the loss of freedoms. But of course, your point is that in the early to mid 20th, uh, sorry, 19th century, people are have, enjoy a lot, a lot fewer rights and freedoms to begin with. There's capitalism is in a more exploitative uh, phase in that yes. early industrialization period and and people forget that we you know i remember this image from school you know the the young boys as being used as chimney sweepers and dying ghastly early deaths sort of basically being used as child slave labor and so it's very it's very easy to lose sight of the political context and all political thought really has to be judged in its context but of course that does go to in some ways the legacy of marxism and I think, I think it would be fair to say, and let me know if you agree, that it's not just the critics of Marx that lose sight of the context, but it seems like his most aggressive utopian fans also seem to take him out of the context and think that he's talking, giving a, a sort of blueprint for how to live Well, yes, today. that's right. But there's a lot to say about that because, of course, there is in Marx. You know, Marx has things to say about almost everything. So he has ideas that would be very useful to us now. He has ideas that are less useful. The ideas that he has that are not helpful are about the nature of historical change. He does have theories of how history develops and changes. He does have theories about social classes and their conflict. And I think most people would now accept that he's significantly wrong about almost all those questions. Uh, he has very few ideas, as I've warned you, about political organization. He doesn't seem to have taken a great interest in that, which warns you in itself that he's a professor sitting in the British Museum working, not, not someone actually controlling a whole nation like, like Lenin or Mao Zedong. Um, it is fair to say that there are tendencies and elements in Marx which connect with what goes wrong later. This was something Kolakovsky argued a great length and upset uh, many people by saying, but I think it's fair to say that some of the problem is in Karl, and you can see it in various ways. He has, for example, no individual ethics. He has no clear idea about how to judge uh, whether or not a person's life should develop in a particular way. His ethical thought is deep and rich, but it does tend to be oriented towards the reform of the social and political and economic order. He has, he has a brilliant things to say about aesthetics, not the same things that Marxists say later again, but he does. But there are other aspects of Marx that are more problematic. It's, it's fair to say there are things in Marx that lead to what go wrong later. I don't think, on the whole, it's the utopianism 
but it might be the eschatology. Just let me spell those two things out. There is a utopian side to Marx, and many people have denied that, but I think they're quite wrong. There is a utopian side to Marx, but it's a concrete utopianism. That's what Bloch argued later, and I think he's right, because what Marx says, of course, is that you must study reality as it historically develops. That's what he's saying. And he thinks that a better possibility of human life is imminent in history itself. He thinks that over thousands of years, human beings have been gradually developing the possibility of a better social order. Now, in a funny way, we can now agree with that because we've seen it come true. Certainly in Australia, we've seen it come true. Marx would have regarded what we are living in and under as imperfect, but a thousand times better than what he had seen. So the, Marxism is a, Marx is a concrete utopian in that he thinks that the real tendencies of reality are what you have to build on. He's not an abstract utopian in the sense of someone who has ideas about how it's all to be organized and then puts them into practice. One of the problems is that he doesn't have those ideas. And when people get into power, as Lenin does, they go to the Jacobin tradition in France and they develop concrete models about how to run Russia. But Marx doesn't have that. He's not an abstract utopian. He's a concrete, or if you prefer, imminent utopian. He thinks that history has potentials that have not been realized. That's a plausible view. The question of whether there's any... Es the word eschatology is a dangerous word, and it's used, of course, by political writers too loosely, but there is a Jewish eschatological side to Marx. He does expect all, all his mature life, he's waiting for the revolution to break out, and he finds the possibility of it in diverse countries. There is in Marx some sense of a crisis that is uh, coming and that will come, and that the world will change when it does come. And I think that has origins in Jewish eschatological thought, not in social science, not in political science, and not in the study of careful historical cases. So he's blamed for the utopianism, which I think was a good thing, not a bad thing. <laughs> he's not blamed for the eschatology enough, which I think is a problem, and is a problem in later Marxists as well. They go through versions of this sort of idea as well. And it leads you to be a, that leads you to be able to perform a critique of, say, Maoist China or Stalin's Russia, because you could say, well, they're utopias. People on the right say that all the time. Well, there's a bit of truth in it, but you could say more strongly that they're not utopian enough. I mean, after all, what is utopian about Stalin's Russia? Well, the movies are, yes, some of the social organization is, but basically the way he runs the country is not what I'd call utopian. It's about as anti-utopian <laughs> and Machiavellian as you can imagine. And Mao in China, too, is an extremely ruthless Machiavellian figure. So I think the political right has correctly noticed that there's an issue about utopianism in Marx and about eschatology, but they put too much stress on the utopian one and I think got it the wrong way around. Marx is a good utopian, not a bad utopian. What's wrong with him is that there's eschatology in it. That's a fascinating point. And this does really raise the question of his reception and legacy because, for better or for worse, his work gets adopted in lots of different countries in ways that have enormous impact on the course of history, not to mention millions of lives. And I, and I realize there's, you know, there's a thousand different types of Marxism and lots of intra-Marxist debate and then lots of debate from non-Marxist observers about exactly the connection between Marxist thought and various socialist, communist, Marxist, Leninist, whatever movements outside. But it might be interesting just to take a look at a couple of the most prominent cases, and you've already mentioned 
Russia and China. And so let, let me ask, ask, ask you this. Who was the Russian Marx? And in what way did they embrace him for good or for ill? Well, of course, different people. Russia in the 19th century develops an intelligentsia. And these people are concerned with the reform of the world and what is what a better society would look like. And so some of them obviously get interested in various social thinkers, one of whom is Marx. Um, and these highly intelligent Russians read Marx through a kind of French set of lenses. They think this is a kind of social determinism. This is a kind of materialism. This is a kind of rejection of uh, Renaissance humanist values, things like that. They they do read it as though Marx was almost a Jacobin, and they themselves are often involved in little terrorist groups or plotting a revolution. And of course, the Russian Revolution comes from people who are influenced by the Jacobin tradition and revolutionary groups that seize power and then, through dictatorship, liberate the masses. So Marx is taken over by in Russia by people who are actually not in his tradition but in another tradition and who are not able to understand the German material, which, of course, is crucial to him. They have read Russian versions of this, even maybe German versions of it, but they don't understand anything about what Fichte or Hegel or Schelling is saying. And that's true in Russia, perhaps even now. The understanding is quite low even now in Moscow in these areas, even when people are very well studied in these things, because the Russian language isn't like the German language and naturally gives different meanings to words. I should say at that point that one of the reasons that Marx has been so completely misunderstood, of course, is that it wasn't translated. Now, if you're relying on English translations, you won't get anywhere. But you have to know that the Russians themselves, of course, um, controlled Marx's papers and they managed to suppress passages they didn't like and so on and so on and so on. It's only now that we're expecting a finally honest account of his entire work. And we, when we uh, think of that, it's going to include you know, dozens of volumes we didn't know existed. He left all these scientific notebooks. We didn't know that until recently. We didn't know that he had a whole philosophy of nature, for example. We didn't know that he was the person that anticipated, if you like, the Anthropocene. That's in the most recent books. Uh, the person who knew all this was Bloch. But when Bloch said all these things in Europe, he was regarded by Marxists as a, some sort of romantic lunatic. It was only much later that people realized my God, that's Karl. But they didn't know that in Bloch's lifetime. So what happens in Russia is that people have, who are in other intellectual traditions take this stuff up and put their views into it. And that's the key thing in Russia. There were people in the 1930s in Russia, or the late 20s, who had a, a much more profound understanding of Marx th than that, particularly de Boren. Uh, some of them worked out that Marx was probably more an idealist than a materialist. They were murdered by Stalin. So... Uh, these people do not survive. Some Russian academicians in the 50s and 60s came closer to understanding aspects of Marx, particularly Ilyenkov. Uh, but these ideas did not penetrate that far into the communist world. Uh, the situation in China is absolutely different and much, much worse because in China, of course, Marx doesn't really come. And you, the thing that people don't understand is that they didn't receive Karl Marx's ideas and sit down and study them. They, what they received were Japanese versions of Marx, which they translated into Chinese. Well, when Marx goes into Japanese, it goes into reverse, and when you then put it into Chinese, it's changed again. They did translate some Russian texts. They translated volume two of the great Russian guide to Marxism, the one on dialectical materialism. They didn't translate volume one. So this means that 
uh, until really quite late, maybe the late 60s, there's very little real reception of Marx in in China at all. Uh, people who call themselves Marxists in China do not have the ideas that Karl Marx had. They don't understand anything really about Hegel or, or Fichte or Schelling. They don't get the Greek classical stuff. Of course they don't. Uh, they do have Chinese utopian ideas and Chinese values of various sorts, and they project it into the Marx box. So that's what happens. There are individual scholars who are more outstanding than that, and there are technical studies of them, but they're relatively few in number. And these ideas are not the ideas of the Communist Party. And the Communist Party develops over time into an increasingly uh, Chinese-based Communist Party. And if you read President Xi's thoughts, which are now all over the streets of Beijing, uh, these thoughts do not have anything to do with Karl Marx. The first one is get rich and powerful. That is not what Karl Marx was saying. And the old culture of China is reappearing in the communist rhetoric more and more and more. Again, that was not what Karl Marx was saying. So in both cases, the misreception is monumental, partly because the texts are not available, partly because the deep cultural background is not known, except to a very small number of outstanding scholars. They do perhaps know these things, but... The people who get power don't know them. And not, not only is the, the sort of German culture of Karl Marx not known, but he's being read within a completely different In countries that paradigm. are totally different and have different problems to the ones he's worrying about, yes. So let me ask you this, because this is really interesting. If we take the two historical figures, if you like, the ugliest, the two ugliest <laughs> historical figures, or that that's a big call, two of the most heinous, if I could put it that way, historical figures, which are both routinely associated with Marx, and that's Stalin and Mao. You've already mentioned both a couple of times. I mean, do either of them study Marx? Are they interested in Marx? Are they really, are they, in what sense are they Marxist versus just a Russian and Chinese power-hungry dictatorial? <laughs> well, the last characterizations are not quite... I mean, it's some truth in it, but it's not, not adequate. Of course, they're interested in Marx, and they're interested in Marxism, and they spend time trying to understand this, but their understanding of it's extremely limited. Stalin studies theology in Georgia, and he is a kind of Russian-Georgian utopian of a certain social sort. Uh, he does develop Marxist teachings. He writes about all kinds of things himself, including biology and things. And of course, this becomes disastrous for Russia. He never understands Marx, the dialectical philosopher. That side of Marx is not something Stalin understands. What Stalin means by dialectical materialism is totally alien to Marx. It's a kind of cosmology. And there's none of that in Karl Marx at all. Uh, China's uh, also complex because Again, Mao Zedong is a Chinese utopian influenced by the Taiping. He's concerned to restore the greatness of China and transform his country. But when he talks about the dialectic, as he does, he's using a Buddhist sense of dialectic, not the Hegelian sense of dialectic you find in Karl Marx. So he does use Marx's phrases, but not in Marx's sense. And of course, he, he doesn't have a Marxist conception of revolution. The whole point about Mao is that the peasantry are going to lead the revolution and bring it about rather than the workers. The workers will hold power, of course. So I think trying to read Marxist ideas into Mao is a lost cause. Uh, it's true that in the 60s, and gradually more so since then, a generation did emerge in China who really did study this stuff. They tried to mug up Hegel in great detail. Last time I was... At 
the philosophy department in Beijing, they were working on Fichte. They had worked out that you couldn't understand Marx without Fichte. Uh, but for a Chinese person, even a very brilliant Chinese person, it's not easy to grasp Fichte's thought because it's difficult for a German, let alone a Chinese. So there's a very non-German influence in China. And the ideas called Marxism in China are usually Chinese ideas using these imported phrases. And just finally on, on China, uh, President Xi and the current uh, Communist Party of China, so they've retained the sort of term communism, which is famously associated with Marx, rightly or ro- wrongly, in the title of the party. Is there any Marxism left in the current authoritarian capitalist one-party state that is China? Well, I don't quite agree with the idea of authoritarian, totalitarian, or one-party state. I mean, it's very Chinese, and so putting Western labels on China doesn't work. The problem, and it is a difficult problem, is to quite grasp just how really Chinese all this is, because we see things we've seen in Europe and think, ah, but if you look more closely, it isn't like that. So do you mean China's actually a different category from the political categories we're used, yes, used to working yes, with in the West. Yes, the categories don't work for China. You see, Western people think there's a communist party, it's it's running China. Well, yes, but there's no political system in your sense, and it, it, it's not a political party in your sense, and it's doing all kinds of things you're not expecting a political party to do. And look who the members are. These are not revolutionary leftists that are running the Communist Party of China in your sense. Uh, so it, it's all very complicated, but there is a genuine inheritance of Marx in Xi. I mean, Xi does think that capitalism will develop the possibilities of human beings and that it will be possible eventually to move out of it into a classless society. He thinks China will build a higher form of civilization, which the whole world can then happily adopt. Uh, there is a strong, there is a great influence from the Marxist tradition on the Chinese Communist Party. But you have to remember that the influence came from the Russians, not from the Germans in China, from Borodin. Uh, You have to also remember that in Chinese, all these terms we're talking about do not have their German sense. So Communist Party in Chinese is Gongchandang, which means public property party. Well, that is not the sense of someone in the West who says he's a communist. Public property party has a different feeling and it has a different meaning. And when you talk to Chinese now, they don't uh, sit there and say, I've considered all the political philosophies of the world and I'm a communist. They say, China is good. And then you say, but is, are you talking about the Communist Party? And they say, well, we don't draw a distinction, you see, because China is the Communist Party. So you can't use Western distinctions to unravel the Chinese tale. And also left and right are dangerous in China. I can't go into that today, but Western people are inclined to think it's clear who the left is and who the right is. But you misunderstand the Chinese Communist Party if you use that distinction, because it was founded by people who could be described as right-wing romantics. Uh, People who we would think is rather rightish are often communists in China. People who we think of as very leftists often joined the Guomindang. In Japan, that's true too. The Communist Party is led by people who have connections with what we might call the right. You can't use these distinctions in Asian countries without a lot of refinement. Well, that's really, really fascinating. Now, another area where Marx's work found fertile ground, interestingly, was in the West from North America to the United Kingdom, to 
the continent, particularly in, in Western Europe during that period of division. And I know this gets really complex and it depends whether we're talking about Italian Marxism or French Marxism. But perhaps we could start this particular bit of the reception piece by just asking the question of why did Marx become such a darling, intellectual darling in Western universities? Uh, I suppose it was really in the, what, mid 20th century? Well, we can't... Uh, I don't think we can answer a question. I don't think we can do that one. Uh, because it depends on the country we're talking about, really. Because obviously the situation in Germany, after the Second World War, you have two Germanys. Now, in East Germany, there is something called Marxism taught in all universities. It's not got much to do with Karl. It's heavily influenced by Russian doctrine because the Communist Party in Germany is led by people who've come back from Moscow and so on and so on. There is a man called Ernst Bloch who does know about Karl Marx, but they eventually uh, have a heresy trial against him and he flees to the West. So it's was not as though... Was that heresy trial, uh, was that for Marxist heresy? Yes, yes, he had uh, incorrect views. Yes, yes, because Marxism-Leninism was the doctrine of East Germany, not Marxism. Marxism-Leninism. And Lenin and Stalin were to be quoted on every page. They didn't mind if you didn't mention Marx, but you had to mention Lenin and Stalin. And in the West, it's, it's totally different because in the Western universities, you develop extremely overeducated people again who fall in like a Dorno, who fall in love with Marx. And they do have great influence in the West German universities. And what they are teaching is a highbrow critique of capitalism on cultural grounds. Nothing to do with what conservatives call cultural Marxism. This is very highbrow stuff. And they develop very, very complicated critiques of Western society. And their students write very difficult books. Adorno wrote the most difficult German of the 20th century. No working person in the world could read a page of Adorno. So this was not a, a leftist trend in the way that people often imagine it was, say, in Australia. It was a rather highbrow trend again. Uh, in other countries, you have to take it country by country. It's different in each country, obviously. But Marx's own ideas were important for a small group of intellectuals who had the knowledge to understand his sources and what he'd read and who'd influenced him. But Marxism appealed essentially to people who didn't know those books and didn't know those things. So if you take the main British Marxist historians of the 20th century, none of them knew anything about what Marx was saying because they didn't read Hegel. They didn't read Schelling. They didn't read Fichte. They didn't have that level of German. They were historians and English speakers, thank you. So the English-speaking world, for example, just didn't pick up this stuff. Now, in the last 20 years, it's all changed, and perhaps people listening would be interested in that, because what has happened is the German idealism has become very hot again. So until quite recently, most people in Western countries you know, didn't know what German idealism was, and if so, maybe someone in the German department knew, but you didn't. Well, it's now very, very important in the United States, and there's a growing movement around the world that says that German idealism was the most important development since the Greeks, and that if you understand the German idealists, you've got a basis for a new understanding of reality. Now, if you go down that track, then you begin to say, well, isn't that what Marx was saying? 
which I'm suggesting, yes, it is what Marx was saying. There is a connection there. And you also have a response to the modern scientific revolution because the German idealist tradition enables you to say that although there's an evolutionary process in which human beings become conscious, when they become conscious, their life acquires a, a different kind of character to that that it had before consciousness. And to understand that character, you have to have an account of transcendental life. Now, this is a difficult idea out of the German idealist tradition, but more and more people are beginning to see that may be right, and that therefore this obscure German stuff that we underestimated for so long might be part of the best way to respond to AI, to post-humanism, to the kinds of things we're dealing with now. Uh, uh, particularly because it, it can be fitted into a pretty tough natural science story, uh, particularly if you decide that consciousness is not confined to human beings. So these ideas that were crucial for Marx and neglected for so long are now re-emerging. And as they re-emerge, this Marx that has been missed comes more into focus. So is the best way to think of Marx in his historical philosophical context to think of him as a German idealist? Well, he's not a German idealist, but he is someone who's read that stuff and tried to learn from it. So it's more that he comes out of that that tra tradition has formed him. He comes out of it and he comes out of the Greek philosophical tradition. He brings the two things together. And that's both, just as ancient Greek philosophy is very relevant now, as you will understand very well, so this German idealist stuff is relevant. We doesn't, not to say we'd go back and say it all again, we wouldn't. But they made advances that were not understood. And people are beginning to see, yes, we'll have to understand them. The other part of the reception puzzle which is actually really intriguing. It's not so much a country as a religion, and that's Christianity. Christian theologians, clergy, thinkers, I suppose mainly, again, in the 20th century, in certain parts of the world more so than others, but it's a pretty widespread phenomenon, develop an interest in Marx and Marxism. Anyone who knows the history of Christian theology and particularly political theology will know about liberation theology in Latin America, which I guess emerges in the 60s and 70s. And they are influenced by and or in dialogue with the Marxism, I'm guessing specifically of Latin America. But there are Christian Marxists. I know in some of my own research, there was a, there was a theological dialogue in Greece between Greek Orthodox theologians and Marxists again in the 60s and 70s that Christos uh, Yannaras, someone I do work on, was involved in. This was a really, and I talk about it like it's in the past tense, but I mean, there's still, I still meet Christian Marxists who are somehow inspired by or are interacting with Marxist ideas or Marxist ideas to the granted all of the qualifications that come out of this conversation it's a question of what marks <laughs> they're talking about but how are we to understand this phenomenon what is the appeal and attraction to christian thinkers in marxism or marxist thought well we have to distinguish again we can't do it quickly because there are a lot of distinctions we'd have to make um lots of people who became christian theologians in the 20th century were religious socialists and as they got older, they often became more disillusioned or they saw what happened in Germany, for example, and they saw that the churches 
did not provide an effective opposition to fascist movements and things of this kind. Um, but often in their youth they had been religious socialists. And so when they met really major Marxist thinkers or people who were religious Marxists, if I could use that phrase, they recognised their early selves in a certain way. Uh, and this happened particularly in Czechoslovakia where leading Protestant theologians and the communists intellectuals got on very well. It happened in Sydney, Australia. I was involved. At one point, they brought to Australia the leading French communist Marxist philosopher. Uh, and we had a dialogue between the communist intellectuals of Australia and the Christians. And I was asked to be part of that as a young student. And it was exactly what you've been implying. The, the communists sat there and said, well, tell us about God, we need to know. And the Christians sat there and said, tell us about Marx, we need to know. <laughs> it was partly that they realised on both sides that there'd been an excessive emphasis on half of the truth. So clever Marxists from about 1960 onwards began to realise that their, their approach to religion was fundamentally misguided and that you would need spirituality in order to have a classless society. And so they began to talk to theologians again and also to realise that that was uh, a view perhaps they'd always held and had broken with too easily. And that would be true of lots of Russians too because, as you know, several important people in the Russian Communist Party turned out to be practising orthodox uh, and so on. And, of course, in East Germany, as you'd expect, the Lutheran factor was quite big as well. And, and Bloch, again, had a crucial role in all this because when he fled to the West... Uh, his, uh, he met Moltmann and the German Protestant and the Catholic theologians in Tübingen and they were overwhelmed that this saintly man came into the room who, who was beaming with ethical light and talking about all these hope-filled utopian things and they thought this is all wonderful. And so they realised, well, maybe they'd rejected Marxism too quickly because they'd had contact with a sort of ridiculous version of it. Well, what Bloch was saying wasn't like that, and he was clearly, in a funny way, a theologian too. They recognised the same set of questions and concerns. And which, even which I have to point out, because this is really fascinating. So the Marxist heretic, who gets pushed out for his heretical Marxist views, which on your account are more faithful yes. to Karl himself, yes. finds a warm reception amongst the leading Christian theo yes. German theologians yes. of the day who are probably shocked to meet yes. well, someone a, that confounds their own yes. stereotypes of yes. what a Marxist-Leninist. And it had a certain effect in Germany as a whole because German young people, of course, knew there'd been a German great culture once, but it didn't survive the Second World War. And so when this man appeared in Tübingen and started to give lectures, young Germans went mad. Because this person, of course, was born in 1885. He was there before the First World War. He'd opposed the First World War. This guy came into the room with long white hair and, you know, looking like your great-grandfather and then had this tremendous oratorical style and, and talked in this sort of uh, messianic, mystical mode. It was uh, hypnotising. Was he the last great German intellectual from that, the heyday of... Yes, German philosophy yes, yes. before uh, Adorno was the other one, and okay. they, but Bloch was a different sort of figure in that he he felt that popular culture contained a great deal of what we need, whereas Adorno, being from a very very wealthy background, uh, was hostile to the actual popular culture, 
and, and Bloch was also much more sympathetic to uh, feminism and to radical movements of all kinds, and of course to all forms of religion. I mean, Bloch had been telling the Marxists all along, we should be in solidarity with the religious movements of the world. We shouldn't be understanding Marxism as an anti-religious movement. This is one of his main things. And he wrote a book which people would probably like to read called Atheism in Christianity, in which he said that only an atheist could be a Christian and only a Christian could be an atheist. So he forced a new level of dialogue. And then he also helped them to see that what Marx was about was setting up a society which human beings could be free. And once he, he went to the West, of course, he was able to say, well, I, I was never really in favour of all this stuff. That's not entirely true. But uh, he, he didn't come over as an apologist for Stalin, which he'd been before that. He came over as someone in favour of the Prague Spring and various uh, positive developments of that kind. Fascinating. So, Wayne, if we just step back a bit and we'll work our way into the contemporary scene here. From our vantage point with this very complex legacy where the suppression of the oeuvre of Marx and questions about what it actually is, lots of misunderstandings, there are cultural interactions as he, his work finds its way into different parts of the world from the Russias and the, the uh, Chinas, there's the complexity of Marx the philosopher which I suppose lends itself to misinterpretation particularly as we develop a kind of cultural distance and particularly for those of us that don't know about the German uh, idealism context or just the German philosophical tradition and culture. In your view, what, what are the greatest ideas or insights of Marx? You've already mentioned that there are, you know, he was wrong about the theory of history and he had some problems with politics specifically in terms of really lacking a, a strong understanding or yeah, strong understanding of power I, I think and parties. The, the answer to that is something like this, that the German idealists were the most important philosophers after the Greeks. And that was not understood in the English-speaking world. It was understood in a way in Scotland. That's a discussion for another day. But the Scots, being hard-working people and tough people and having good German, picked up that this German idealism was absolutely central to the future of the world. But English people did not really pick that up in the same way. There were some, of course, there were British idealists, but the really profound reception did not occur in the English-speaking world. And now it is occurring. And as it occurs, it changes the story, as I've tried to indicate quite radically. Because Marx picks up both the classical Greek heritage and the German idealist heritage and tries to say that human beings have to act on adverse circumstances to realize the kingdom of freedom. He talks about the realm of freedom. Uh, and you could almost see it as a translation of biblical terms. I didn't mention, but Marx's first essay is a Christology. And Marx knows all the church fathers off by heart as well as everything else. And what Marx does do is say that human beings can become free. But to become free, they'll have to change the way the economic order makes them instruments of its purposes. He wants to change the economic order so that it allows human beings to become free as individuals. He's not a collectivist Marx. He's strongly in favor of the freedom of the individual. Now, I think this is still revolutionary stuff, 
The problem is that we don't know how to change the economy in the right way. And we don't know what political institutions we would then need because he didn't come up with them. And no one has come up with them since. So in a way, he's very much on the tennis court as we think of ourselves as going out of existence through the impact of technology, as we look at post-humanism as a real prospect, as we see AI machines last week being described as conscious in the US, Marx has got a direct response to that, which is that you have to develop your freedom through developing institutions that allow you to be free. He's not a, a French utopian who thinks everyone's free and can go off for the weekend. He's, that's not his view. He's Hegelian on that point. Freedom has to be realized in real social, political, economic, and legal institutions. And he's right about that, I think. In fact, I would say that in Australia, we've made huge progress on that project. Wouldn't say we've got there, but we've done very well, particularly compared to other countries. And that helps you see what Marx was trying really to bring out, that freedom was possible, but you had to have institutional forms of it. And that required not allowing economic systems to twist you in their shape. It wasn't that he was anti-capitalist. That's a misunderstanding. Marx thought that capitalism set the human race on a much more positive path. But he thought eventually it led to contradictions and problems. He may have got that wrong in detail, but he wasn't wrong about the general insight that a capitalist system doesn't give you a good society or a good political system unless you make them. You have to construct them. It doesn't do it for you. Uh, in that sense, uh, the problem, I think, is that our economics people, who are superlative at what they study, uh, are not studying the other two-thirds of the story, and you have to put the three bits together. And then you can say to them, well, yes, the economy may do well with those policies, but does the policy do the people? And we are getting a bit better at that, but we've got a long way still to go. So I don't think the answers are in Marx, but I think the questions are in Marx. I think he's, the most important book he wrote, which most people don't know, is called The Grundrisse. And this is a work in which he really goes into how value production distorts the human being and distorts social life. Now, he's too pessimistic in my view, but there's something to what he says. And if you, if you go to the US, particularly you know, perhaps to the less privileged parts of it. You'll see what he's talking about. You'll go to places where, you know, people are not as free as they ought to be or where people are enslaved by technology instead of being freed by it. So the philosophy of freedom that Marx brings out is one of the things we need to return to. And I didn't say, but I should have said, <clears throat> one of Marx's main ideas, which is entirely lost in the Marxist tradition, was that freedom is part of the universe. Marx does not think of freedom as something people have as opposed to the universe. And his original doctoral thesis was on the theory of matter in Epicurus and Democritus, and he sides with Epicurus. Now, what that means in very simple terms is that freedom actually operates at the atomic level. And so Marx thought this freedom thing was actually part of the way you, the universe is, and that no one had been able to think that yet. I would say that no one's been able to think that now. So you can actually return to Marx as the philosopher of freedom, drop quite a lot of his philosophy of history, drop the class theory to a certain extent, drop uh, some of his politics, support quite a lot of his concrete utopianism, and reject his eschatology. Do you think it would, it's fair to say that today Marxism, in whichever myriad of the myriad forms it takes we're talking about 
is still more popular, more influence, influential, more present than the kind of Karl Marx, Karl Marx, the philosopher you're talking about, and in a way, does it follow from from what you're arguing that we should just dispense with Marxism per se and get back to <laughs> certain aspects of Marx? Because if, as you argue, and this is a really, really interesting argument, if Marx raises the questions that are well worth taking seriously and thinking about and questions that perhaps no one has asked since or very few have asked since or even understood but he doesn't provide the answers and yet Marxism really it seems proceeds on the assumption that the answers are found in Marxism in reality maybe the the answers come from you know Chinese philosophy or cultural traditions or some kind of czarist substratum in Russia that gets called Marxism but I suppose the the sort of provocative question I'm asking is could we should we ought we to just draw a line under all Marxism anything that goes under Marxism and look at Karl Marx afresh and try and answer these 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 questions or at least take up the questions without all of the the baggage that comes with the ism the Marxism Well, I'm partly sympathetic to that. It's important not to give the impression that Marxism is very influential because where is it influential? I mean, a certain queer film of it has some importance in Cuba. Uh, There's a little bit of it in the way the Communist Party runs Vietnam, and you could say similar things maybe about Laos and Cambodia up to a point. It's not really a very influential ideology in any real state. And in China, people calling themselves Marxists can be arrested quite easily. The Communist Party is not keen on those sort of people very much. Um, So historical Marxism is not what we need, but we do need to analyze it scientifically like everything else because some of its elements may be better than we think. It isn't wrong about everything. Um, when the East German communists took over, for example, they, they made all the great classical works of German culture available in cheap paperback edition for everybody. Well, I don't think that was a mistake. And so on. And Stalin, you know, we can talk about Stalin for days, but Stalin did some good things. Uh, obviously, Russian people who before that were dying very early, living in mud cottages uh, without sewerage, without anything really, they were put into rather badly built flats. Well, they didn't have flats before Stalin built them. So it's not that Marxism is a sort of horror story without qualification. It's a complex business in each country. And when things go radically wrong, we need to be very clear about what went wrong and why. That I do think. And it does have to do with authoritarianism. It does have to do with not putting enough emphasis on the freedom of the individual. And you can blame Karl a bit for that in a practical sense, but not in a visionary sense. In other words, he was on about that. He didn't fully foresee the sorts of things that eventually happened because he was imagining that it would be easier to get to this society of free free associated producers than it's turned out to be. I think that's entirely fair. So just coming back, and we'll, f- we'll finish on this, this note, those, those questions which are really intriguing that you about our contemporary society that you can trace back to to Marx and really I just want to draw you out a little bit more because this this is where things I think get really interesting and in a way we're kind of leaving Marx behind behind here but let's talk about capitalism the very thing that Marx critiqued a couple of centuries ago 
we're now in a, I guess you could say, historically very advanced form of capitalism in that it's 200, it's been developing for a couple of centuries since Marx. We don't exactly have the chimney sweeper problem, but we do have other problems such as, you know, multi-billionaires with enormous financial power and in some cases political clout that seem to even go well beyond anything bad that Marx could envision in his <laughs> day of of capitalists and I, so that this kind of disparity between the the growing minority tiny minority of extremely wealthy people and just the asymmetry that that creates and the power imbalance and and the like I don't you don't have to be um, a critic of capital well you don't have to be against capitalism or even in favor of some alternative system to be able to acknowledge that it hasn't exactly led in the course of history to a pure utopia so that if you go to a big city you see homeless people living on the street begging this is it seems to be i know economists might debate it but this is a feature of a capitalist society at the very least capitalism hasn't erased homelessness and poverty i could go on on and on and on but i was i just want to go back to that very interesting point you made about the your in a way marxist point dare i say it about the political institutions and the fact that capitalism you know it's up to us to devise develop reform the institutional framework around capitalism in order to make it work but would that be a kind of fair summation of the kind of direction you're you're going and i'd like to hear more i suppose about your views of capitalism and political institutions right now in the Twenty-first century. I mean, part of the part of the problem you have to face is that when these nineteenth-century people try to think about all this, they all know that you have to have some basis for a critical evaluation of your socio-economic order. They're not naive in that sense any more than the people of the enlightenment are naive they understand that the you know it's not very controversial in world history to say that the present situation needs reform in almost every country in the world good people have said that for thousands and thousands of years clever people always think that political system needs fixing the drains aren't working the farming system is out of date and so on and so on and so on. but you have to have several things, not one thing. One thing you need, obviously, is the critical rationality that you apply to all the situations that are around you. But you also need some conception of what the human being is and what the universe is and whether you want the human being to survive as a factor in the universe, and if so, why? And the 20th century crisis, as Nietzsche correctly saw, is that we don't have any rational account of what the human being is or what the universe is and why should the human being be privileged in it? So there's a kind of nihilist disorder at the heart of our civilization and our culture. That's the real crisis of the West, not homeless people only, but the fact that there's a, a nihilist void and when we, we posture in all these areas, but we don't survive, we don't provide hard-headed or strong visionary material. And so our youth become alienated and in the end they flit into the existing system and they just try to climb the pole, economic, social and political. You can't blame them for that. You didn't give them any other game to play. So if we're to reform the world, and we always have to reform the world, we also have to come back to these big questions. I think what Marx got... Right, although I don't think his answers were correct, but he did see that 
the grand questions and the practical questions were actually connected. And I think we're very bad at that at the moment. I think one of the roles of theology, for example, could, should in the future be to help us again to connect practical problems to grand questions. Cancelling the grand questions, which is what utilitarians and positivists do, in the end leaves you powerless in the face of oppression. You don't have a basis for actually counteracting it. You can see problems in the US at the moment, and the core problem is not Mr Trump or something else or this decision or that decision. It's that they've lost a strong vision of the value of the human being and of the role of the human being in the universe. Now, I think these are the key questions on the theoretical side, and I think you have to proceed with them on a scientific basis, but also a more than scientific basis. You, the sciences won't do it by themselves, but you can't do it without the sciences. But if you address that self, those, those issues with the full power of the mind, which is what the German idealists did, and one of the things they did that was not known really until recently is, of course, they did all the sciences too. They weren't just writing funny philosophical books. They were reading and working on the sciences as well. If you do that, then I think you've got something that you can add to your rationality in the reform of your world. I don't think anyone doubts that the present world order needs reform. That's not very controversial. I mean, obviously, we've got no further with stopping war than we were in 1945. We thought we'd made progress. We haven't. We can't control nation states if they turn violent. We haven't got a, a proper world order. We're not handling Africa. Look at the situation in Africa. It's nothing to do with left or right or progressive or conservative. Everyone can agree Africa shouldn't be starving. Africa shouldn't be in the disorder it's in. So I think intelligent people can agree that reform is a permanent human process. Now, we can fight about whether to reform that or to reform this and whether you know we should give more money to A or to B. But I think if we study the main questions technically and carefully in it, by technically I mean really understanding you know, why bridges fall down or, or why roads collapse. If you apply that to the socioeconomic life, technically, I think you can make a huge amount of progress. And I think left and right are both guilty of talking megabunk when what I want to hear is more technical contributions. So if you raise the wages too quickly, does it create inflation and various other major problems. If so, what are you going to do about it? The, there are 50, what do you do about aged care is another obvious example. And I don't think these are left-right issues. I think they're technical questions. And once you see a better solution, intelligent people can see that. In Australia, we've got superannuation. The number of people who want to get rid of it is very small. We can all see, yes, it's not perfect. Yes, it's got some disadvantages, but it's a huge step forward on 1940. And we've got, as you know, compulsory voting, and I don't think there's hardly any sensible person in Australia who doesn't think that's a massive step forward compared to Britain or the United States or China. Compulsory voting has enormous advantages for the well-being of a people. We need to add further technical developments. We do need to monitor wealth of all citizens, not in the sense of saying you can't have six shillings or six dollars more, you've got too much, but in the sense of trying to maintain balance between social groups. We don't want one little group to have 90% of the wealth. We don't, this is not good in any country, whichever group it is. We don't want Queensland to have all the wealth and Tasmania to have nothing, or vice versa. So I think there's a lot of progress still to be made in technical study of technical problems. But you also need the big stuff about what is it all about? What are good ideals and what are bad ideals? And I think 
that in that sense, I think utopianism is relevant. Again, I defend utopia against all of its critics, although I agree with all the critics, of course. But I think that they're missing the point because utopianism in the sense of big abstract planning, we can all agree is nonsense. But utopianism in the sense of seeing the need for testing ideals and reality is very sound. And societies that give up on that end up destroying themselves. I'm worried that the United States is losing the utopia with which it was founded. Now, we all make fun of the Constitution and the founding fathers, and we note the racism and the slavery and so on. That's all fair. But in its day, it was an enormous utopian leap forward, as, was, uh, as were other developments in world history. So I think we need a balance of the big questions and the technical and not confuse one with the other. Marx, in my view, did confuse one with the other. And I think we need to be finite, concrete and practical utopians with a realist bias, not with a mystico bias. Wayne, there's really nothing left to be said after that uh, superb performance other than to thank you once again for coming and sharing your incredible intellect with me personally and my audience so thank you lovely to be here